0: with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Monday edition of After Nine. Uh, I'm Stuart Parker. I'm your Monday host, and uh, today's show, we have two guests for you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I interviewed David Merner, who is running for the leadership of the Green Party of Canada. That leadership race is beginning to heat up in some quite interesting ways, and I've invited a second candidate from that race onto the show, Alex Tyrrell, presently the leader of the Green Party of Quebec, seeking the fe- party's federal leadership. Uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to switch gears. Uh, I attended the opening of Anna Rose uh, Georgeson's uh, retrospective exhibition at uh, the Two Rivers Gallery in downtown Prince George. The exhibition is still up. I strongly encourage you to attend it. But we're going to have Anna Rose in the studio today to talk about the retrospective and her career Uh, long-term career as an artist here in north-central British Columbia. But first, we have Alex on the line from Montreal. Alex, thanks for coming on the program.
2: Thanks for having me, Stuart.
1: All right. So let me... uh, we got a lot to cover. Uh, Let me dive into the local context that you come out of, right? We had David Murner on the show. He's from Victoria. We have a sense in British Columbia of how the Greens are doing over there, but... um, Quebec politics is a very different kettle of fish. So um, the Green Party, many of the smaller left-wing parties in Quebec, chose to throw in with uh, Quebec Solidaire, the third largest party in the legislature. Uh, The New Democrats, the old New Democrats joined, Option Nationale a uh, smaller separatist party, all kinds of groups came together under the banner of QS and have got some good electoral results out of that. How, why has the Green Party chosen to stay independent from that umbrella in Quebec?
2: Well, the, there are a number of differences between uh, the Green Party, Quebec, and uh, Quebec Solid. There, of course, we, you know, we share a lot in common. We're both uh, parties. But one of the main differences is uh, Quebec nationalism. And especially in the last couple of years with the arrival of uh, gelez uh, as the co-leader of Quebec, there, and their merger with you know, the ultra-sovereignist party up nationale they really put Quebec independence as their number one issue. And so while they do have a lot of uh, left-wing promises, uh, it's really um, difficult to see how they would deliver all of these promises when they're promising to have a referendum on Quebec independence within the first mandate. And more recently, they've been committed to you know, starting to break the ties with Canada before even obtaining the mandate from a referendum. So uh, these are very different priorities. And the main difference between the Green Party of Quebec and Quebec Solidaire is that uh, our platform, our eco-socialist platform, is completely achievable within the current constitutional framework.
1: So um, is uh, is the Green Party of Quebec an explicitly federalist party then? Yes, it is. Well, that, um, however that does for you in Quebec, that'll certainly play in the rest of Canada as you come out here to campaign, uh, choosing to be an explicitly federalist party at this particular moment in, uh, in Quebec history. So um, uh, is, um, is your party officially affiliated with the Green Party of Canada, or is it independent like BC's Green Party?
2: Well, I mean, uh, we share the common branding, so there's a lot of people who, who don't really know the difference between two parties. So we do have uh, independent uh, structure, and it's independent decision-making structure and independent membership. Um, and the Green Party of Quebec is really the left wing of the Canadian Green Movement. We're the only uh, Green Party in Canada that defines itself as eco-socialist. And the Green Party of Canada, you know, although we do share a lot of uh, commonalities with them, is quite a bit more to the centre.
1: And I found that interesting in recent years. Obviously, uh, when I was the leader of the Green Party of British Columbia, we were not the most left-wing Green Party, although we were eco-socialists, although we described ourselves as left-wing. Back then, the Green Party of Saskatchewan was uh, to the left of the Green Party of BC. Um, What do you make of this general rightward drift of the other Green Parties, the Green Parties in English Canada over the past 20 years?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't want to generalize about all of them because, there, you know, there are a lot of provincial green parties outside of Quebec that do have quite uh, progressive platforms, but there's definitely been a shift to the center or a shift to the, to the right uh, over the past uh, decade or so. And I think that it's a little bit unfortunate because people in the Green Party, a lot of us, we seem to think that, uh, you know, in order to have success, we have to moderate the message. And I'm more of the opinion that, you know, if you have an idea that's difficult to explain, you can either water it down or you can get better at explaining it. And I think that the Green Party should work more at explaining their position rather than, than moderating it to try and win some votes.
1: Now, that's, um, uh, that's uh, uh, so is that going to be sort of your central message in your campaign for the federal party's leadership?
2: Yeah, very much. I think the Green Party of Canada should be an activist party. We should be outspoken. We should really hit the issues on the head. And uh, I think that, you know, Canadian politics in general has sort of converged to the center. And you have all these parties, you know, whether it's the the Green, NDP, that don't really want to take controversial positions, want to sort of be everything to everyone. And I think that when you do that, you don't manage to get anywhere because there's a lot of this population who wants to vote for leaders who have very clear visions for the future of the country uh, with a dynamic team of candidates who want to shine away from what they stand for.
1: Well, this is, um, this is a funny thing about Canada, right? Like, the rest of the world is polarizing. You look at the national politics of the United States, Mexico, Brazil, England, you name it, wherever you go, the Irish election yesterday, Sinn Féin won the election. Uh, what, it, it seems strange that while everywhere else— where in this rapidly polarizing political environment, Canada remains stuck In the 1990s, when uh, the parties are working off theories like triangulation, wedge issues, the move to the center, the third way, all of that stuff. Heard a lot of that stuff from David Murner when I interviewed him about how he wanted to make sure to introduce the competitiveness of the private sector to the delivery of public services and things like that. Um, How is it? Is Canada... Are the Canadian people um, at odds with the rest of the world in sort of keeping our head, heads down and staying in the 90s? And if not, why is our political establishment stuck there if the population has moved?
2: I think that, you know, Canada is like a very progressive country, and, you know, we do have a, a lot of uh, activists across the country, but I think that, you know, the activists have uh, somewhat neglected the tactic of, of using party politics to advance progressive agendas. And so, we're, you know, a lot of the parties are left with uh, somewhat of a void, you know, and, um, you know, without those, you know, left-wing eco-socialist people are approaching within the parties, it's, it's easy for them to sort of drift to the center. And, I mean, another thing that's happened in, in politics last decade is that, you know, Stephen Harper abolished the per vote subsidy. And, like, this was the big news at the time, and it even led to, in 2008, was one of the things that provoked, like, the coalition crisis— at the time, but since then they've abolished the uh, the public funding, so all of our parties are dependent on private donations of people who can give up to uh, almost three thousand dollars per year. So in that kind of context, like our entire politics has taken a bit of a shift to the to the center right, and uh, you know the political our political leaders when they're speaking, like in the leaders' debates, for example, well they're speaking to the voters, but they're also speaking to their donor base, which is almost as important, unfortunately. So I think that you know, the the left not really wanting to be involved with party politics combined with this new private funding structure has really had uh, some negative consequences.
1: So, and there are some other institutional issues that I've consistently raised, and they pertain directly to your leadership race. So the Green Party of Canada has uh, one of the things that it has instituted uh, which makes Canada unique in the democratic world is um, that control over who a can, uh, over who a party runs in a particular riding is under the sole and direct control of the party's leader, not the party's members in that riding, not some other process. And part of this has been the bureaucratization of that, that the most important thing now in going from being a regular person to being a candidate for a major party is not signing up enough members to win at a nomination meeting, but to pass a process known as vetting. Um, This is the process whereby a group of staffers whose names we generally don't know, meet in secret, look at uh, candidate's CV and how they've answered a series of questionnaires, and determine whether that candidate will be permitted to seek the party's nomination. And uh, typically when a candidate is not permitted, uh, no reasons are offered, Uh, the candidate is just devetted. Uh, now, as the first person um, this happened to within the NDP, this process has been of interest to me. I asked David Murner about it on our last program, and he stated that that would be something that uh, the Greens under his leadership would strengthen and use as a tool more often. What's your attitude towards vetting? Should you become the leader? And are you going to have to pass vetting to get to run for the leadership?
2: Right, so that's a very interesting question, and I've led the Green Party back through two general elections. And you know, we do have to screen candidates because sometimes you know you have people who, when they fill out the questionnaire, you find out that really they don't have that much in common with the ideology of the party, right? And the voters are looking for, uh, you know, want to be able to trust that the candidates they're voting for will support the party platform. Uh, The Green Party has had a sort of operated under this idea of, you know, like David Byrne will say, a big tent, you know, so there'd be a coalition of left and right. What I'm calling for is that the Green Party of Canada becomes an explicitly left-wing party. So under those circumstances, I would expect that candidates who are running for the Green Party would support this agenda and support uh, this new platform uh, that that we call the Green New Deal. Um, That being said, uh, there seems to be some sort of um, some problems with uh, the way that they've structured the vetting for the leadership race. And, you know, they have a secret committee, and everything that's supposed to review the applications. And it's very unclear what the criteria will be um, for allowing or denying uh, leadership candidates access to the, to the race, you know. So I think in the case of a, a leadership race, we should really be able to have a race that has... Uh, all different opinions uh, represented in it. I don't mind running in a leadership race against candidates who want to bring the Green Party of Canada to the right. I think that's a debate that we should have. I'm confident to be able to to win it. But there are a lot of people who are worried that the party establishment will use the vetting process as a way to uh, ensure a predetermined outcome for the leadership race.
1: That is certainly a concern. Now, um, passing... um Passing muster with the Green Party's star chamber uh, is uh, one of the things you've got to do to uh, to seek the leadership. Uh, they've also placed a very hefty fee on this, a fee of $50,000, which struck me as ironic given that uh, when I was with the Greens um, – we twice went to the Supreme Court stating that the fifty thousand dollar entry fee on running in an election for a political for a national party that Brian Mulroney had instituted in nineteen ninety three was unconstitutional. It seems weird that a party that once well at least three times told the Supreme Court that a $50,000 entry fee was unconstitutional for a general election, has now instituted a $50,000 entry fee for its own leadership race.
2: I know it's it's funny, eh, how, how things can change. And I mean, you know, Elizabeth May herself has spoke very passionately against big money in politics in, in the past. And, you know, when she ran for the leadership of the Green Party, it was a $1,000 fee to join the race, and there was a spending cap of 50000 and now, you know, you go a few years later and that same Green Party is having a $50,000 entrance fee and then a spending limit of $500,000 for a party with only 20,000 members in it, which, you know, works out to about, you can spend about $25 to convince each member, which is really an incredible amount of, of money. And, like, one of the things that I've pointed out to uh, the Green Party of Canada establishment is that, you know, you look at BC, look at the last BC election, one of the things that propelled the Green Party to winning three seats is that they were outspoken against corporate money in politics and against big money in politics. And so that same party who had that victory, you know, has also put in a quite hefty entrance fee to their leadership race. And the Green Party of Canada seems to be modeling themselves on on the B.C. leadership race. So I think that the Green Party really needs to stay true to its values. We've never been a party of big money, and we should... Uh, you know, stick with our traditions of grassroots participatory democracy and allow uh, as many candidates as want to run in the leadership race run. I'm not opposed to having any kind of fee. I think something like five thousand dollars would be uh, more than acceptable. But it seems that now they want to reduce the leadership race. You know, to only like one, two, or three candidates that will be able to uh, pass all of these hurdles that they've that they've put in place and. I think that if the Green Party of Canada wants to continue developing, if we want to remain a healthy party, that we really have to have some very profound debates. I mean, it's been 14 years since the last leadership race. Uh, The party is very much top-down control, and it's really time to have a debate about which direction this party should go uh, as we go into the future.
1: Well, I uh, observed uh, February 3rd uh, was... uh, the Green Party of British Columbia's 37th birthday. Uh, we often, uh, one of the strange narratives about the Green Party, in every election I've seen the Green Party contest, the party has been, uh, has been branded as a new phenomenon, a new party, a thing that's just happened. But, of course, 37 is, um, right, you're in early middle age by that point. Um, as, um, uh and so when people when the greens use terms like the old line parties it's it's a little bit disorienting because of course there are parties significantly younger than the greens like the conservative party of canada um and so um as a party that's sort of entering middle age um There's one vision of that middle age that, you know, is, um, well, being more centrist, being more uh, whatever, but, um, and you're a youthful person coming into all this, but what are some of the ways that the Green Party can adapt to being an older party? Um, What are some of the the, uh, ways it might need to change how it thinks and evolve?
2: I think that the best way for the Green Party of Canada to renew itself is to bring in the next generation, and like myself, I became a leader of the Green Party of Quebec at age 25. Uh, I've been leading it for six and a half years. I'm 31. I think a lot of people want to see uh, a, a younger person lead the party, and you know the the Green Party of Canada has you know really the base is uh, is constituted to a large degree of people who are a little bit older. There's a lot of people who are involved in the Green Party are sort of in retirement uh, years. So I think that we really need to rejuvenate uh, the party and to not just have like a handful of youth candidates running here and there, but really have uh, some young people in decision-making roles much higher up in the decisional structure of the organization. And you know, to date, I've encountered a great deal of resistance you know, as a young person coming in. With uh, you know a bold agenda to shake things up, there's a lot of resistance to that. There's a lot of people within the group Party of Canada who want to sort of keep doing the same thing that they've always done, and you know people said Look, we won three seats to this message. So we have to do the same thing sort of forever, you know, for the next few years. And what I tell those people is that it's not because we got 6.5% of the vote and 1% of the seats in the House of Commons that now we have to be there, that we can never change. We have to keep doing the same thing uh, over and over again. People should not be afraid of change. We should be able to uh, adapt with the times, change with the times, and that's what I'm proposing in this leadership race.
1: All right. So we're going to go to commercial. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you about some of the uh, issues that are controversial, both in Canadian society and in green politics. So uh, after this short break, we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to After Nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FN.
1: All right, we're back with uh, Alex Terrell, candidate for the leadership of the Green Party of Canada, presently leader of the Green Party of Quebec. And um, I wanted to dive right into um, an issue that – Uh, was really effectively used by the NDP uh, in the last election to hammer the Greens on Vancouver Island and uh, defeat candidates like David Murner, who had been leading in the polls. And and that's the party's handling of the question of abortion in Canadian politics. The Green Party of Canada uh, was the only party in Parliament to depart from what we might think of as an informal agreement that's existed throughout the 21st century, which is that political parties might have uh, anti-abortion MPs, they might have anti-abortion members, but that no matter what an MP's views on abortion were, they would not be permitted to raise abortion Um, As an issue in the House of Commons. And if they did, they would face stiff penalties from their party, as the MPs who did this uh, during Stephen Harper's prime ministership did. The Greens wanted to depart from that consensus. Some people said that uh, this was because the Green Party was covertly courting the anti-abortion movement. Some people said it was because the Green Party was highly principled in, um, uh, in its position that it would never um, use the office of party whip to control its MPs' votes on any issue other than the unity of Canada. What was your take on how all that shook out, and where will you sit on this question if you become party leader?
2: Yeah, okay, well, that's, uh, that's a great question, and uh, I think that the Green Party of Canada completely mishandled that whole situation in the last election. Uh, I, uh, I spoke against it publicly uh, at the time during the election, And, you know, Elizabeth May had already had some quite controversial statements on the record about her position uh, with respect to abortion. Uh, She had said that women don't have a frivolous right to choose. In the past, she is a very religious person, and she has said that she's personally against abortion. So all that stuff uh, was already on the public record before the election, and she always said that she is in favor of, you know, the right to legal, safe legal abortion, which is great. But... In an interview, she's you know she was asked, "Well, would you apply party discipline because the Green Party traditionally doesn't have any party discipline? And if if one of the MPs wanted to raise the issue, what would you do?" And she said, "Oh, I could try and convince them, but I couldn't stop them from doing it." And a lot of people were really uh, outraged by that, particularly women, particularly feminists, uh, who thought that you know it was completely absurd that you know a party that's supposed to be progressive would actually open the door to. Um, to to recriminalizing abortion, and you know instead of um, you know responding to this by by saying that you know we will discipline MPs, we won't let this happen. Uh, the Green Party, and particularly Elizabeth, laughed out at the NDP, uh, called them uh, liars and stuff like that. I heard Dave Murray say the same thing on your on your show a couple weeks ago, and you know really made kept this story going in the news. You know. And I think that that was really a horrible way to handle it. First of all, the Green Party of Canada should never allow members of Parliament to reopen the abortion debate. Um, You know, one of the things I'm campaigning on is to bring a certain amount of party discipline back into the Green Party of Canada. I mean, the the fact that when the candidates, uh, you know, sign their agreement with the party, that they say specifically that they won't be held to defend the party's platform or anything like that, I think is is a mistake because when the voters, you know, are deciding who to vote for, they have a lot of information about the parties, the party platforms, but there's not usually that much information available about the candidate. Usually it's just a bio and a few Facebook posts. So how are they really supposed to know, you know, where the, the person that they're voting for, where does that person stand on all of these issues, right? Well, the information is not available. So I think that, you know, there should be some party discipline in, in the Green Party of Canada, there should be things that are party lines. Myself in Quebec, I oppose a party line against uh, Bill 21 or any kind of law that um, you know brings in religious discrimination um, you know, towards employees in the public sector. For example, we have a lot of problems with Islamophobia and that sort of thing here in Quebec. Uh, when I first started the leadership in 2013, I put my foot down. I said, we're not going to give a Green Party microphone to anybody who's going to advocate for discrimination. And that's what I'd like to see happen in the Green Party of Canada as well.
1: That um, okay. That is a, that's a very clear line that you're taking now. Of course, this is British Columbia, um, and uh, all eyes are on the Wet'suwet'en people right now um, here in Prince George, where the nearest um, city to Wet'suwet'en territory, where um, the uh, traditional uh, leadership of um, The nation is trying to stop a pipeline that um, uh, will connect the uh, natural gas uh, fields in the Peace Region to the giant uh, liquefied natural gas uh, plant Royal Dutch Shell is building in Kitimat. Um, The uh, Green Party of Canada has had harsh words. For John Horgan. They've had harsh words for Justin Trudeau. But of course, the reason that this government can force this pipeline through, the reason Mike Farnworth is Solicitor General and John Horgan is Premier, is because the Green Party of British Columbia is propping this government up. Do you believe that uh, the Green Party of British Columbia should continue propping this government up when it has to vote for about $600 million in um, new fossil fuel subsidies in the budget here on February 18th. Should the Greens let this government fall, Um, over the carbon bomb they're building, over the uh, militarization of Wet'suwet'en territory? Or are we stuck in the confidence and supply agreement with John Horgan as Premier and Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, continuing to give these orders to the RCMP?
2: Right. Well, I mean, I'd like to start by saying that I think that the Green Party of D.C. did the right move by putting the the NDP government in rather than the Liberals. And I think that, uh, you know, the NDP has done... Uh, better than the Liberals would have done. That being said, uh, you know, the Green Party of uh, B.C. could be using their leverage with the balance of power to uh, force the uh, the Horgan government to, to backtrack on this issue. And it seems as though, uh, you know, the Green Party of B.C. has been very, very cautious, has, you know, not wanted, has, as far as I know, has never threatened to bring down the government about anything the entire time. And so I think that they could be playing this, a little bit more aggressively, and that you know the the government should be called into question over their actions on the Wet'suwet'en territory. Uh, I was up there last summer. I, I, I visited the camp. I spent three nights there. I met with the people. I saw the land, and you know the Wet'suwet'en have been fighting for a long time to protect uh, this land, and you know to bring all these pipelines through to trample on their rights, to send in the RCMP to get you know. Court injunctions in in the settler courts, and then and then say that well, this is the rule of law, and this is the way it is. And to hear the premier of BC saying the same thing, I think is horrible. It's a step backwards for uh, reconciliation. Myself, I participated in many protests out in Montreal in support of the the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, and I think that you know the Green Party could be doing a little bit more to uh, to pressure the BC government.
1: All right. Well, um, on that uh, on that note, um, I want to thank you for coming on the program. We're looking forward to your uh, leadership tour uh, of British Columbia. Uh, hope to have you up here, um, if not at Wet'suwet'en territory again, then at least up here in Prince George. Um, anyway, thanks again, Alex, and good luck in the campaign.
2: Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for having me.
0: Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Well, we're back uh, with the Monday edition of After 9. I'm Stuart Parker, and uh, the um, local celebrity whose name I've been mispronouncing for the first half of the program is with me in studio, Anne Rose uh, uh, Jorgensen. There we go. (laughs) Sorry. All right. So Anna Rose um, is the subject of a major retrospective show at uh, Two Rivers Gallery, uh, downtown Prince George. Uh, Encourage people to take it in. Uh, We're going to try and... um, hit that note that Peter Zosky used to hit uh, in his interviews on CBC of talking with a visual artist and trying to conjure visual images via the radio uh, so that uh, we can give you a bit of a sense of the art. And so it's um, uh, going into this is a little tricky, but let's begin with some of the basics. Um, How long have you been uh, doing art? uh, visual art in this part of the world?
3: Um, probably as long as I've been in this part of the world.
1: <laughs> and how yeah. long is that?
3: Um, I I came here with my parents when I was three, so long ago. Almost 60 years.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, your parents um, had settled in Vanderhoof as well?
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, One of the things that you stressed when you were talking about, you know, this huge body of work is how local the work was, how much it comes out of this single place. How far afield have you ranged in doing your work? What's sort of the area that your body of work covers?
3: A, a lot of the work is just uh, specifically about our place where I live, um, the the land, the farm that my parents built, and where I still live now. And but also uh, the work on the fires and the logging and things like that happened maybe in a hundred kilometer radius uh, around our place, and and it's. It's sort of just about the general forest in the central interior.
1: So there's a lot of very different foci that you've had. I looked at a... At a painting of a logging truck, I looked, uh, you know, next to uh, next to a clear cut. Looked at um, the um, the language series you mm-hmm. did with things that looked like writing that appeared uh, naturally on wood and other places. So you've had a lot of optics within that, and um, so. What will cause you to change your focus when you move from things very close up, things far away? What are the things that condition those decisions?
3: I'm not sure. (laughs) I I guess some of it is uh, determined by things that happen to the forest itself, such as when the pine beetles came and um, killed the trees And other things, such as all those giant fires that we've been having in the last few years. Uh, So those are external things that um, determine sort of a newer uh, direction. But sometimes it's just things that I'm doing. I walk around and, and look at the ground and see different things than I had seen before, or maybe see them in a new way.
1: So, when your parents came and this farm in its first incarnation, um, how big a piece of property are we talking about?
3: It's two sections, so that's two square miles. And when we first came, it was all bush. It, there was no no clearing in it. So my my father cleared the land and put fields in.
1: And um, so the first change was the arrival of these fields. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the next change to hit the property?
3: That was a slow change, too. Those fields took a long time to um, be put in because it's hard to do that work with a small cat. Um, and then there were um, cattle and um, hay land. So those are all changes, too. And then things are quite stable. Um, they built a road, like roads and things like that and then the the next very large change was when the pine beetles came and we we cleared quite a lot of timber that had remained um before that so
1: so this then gives you a a different vista right in the sense that your perspective the breadth of uh the breadth of field you can see with the naked eye um what are are there some less obvious changes that a, a less trained observer would miss
3: um, the, the, the I mean they were definitely very obvious to everyone in the area um, it, it, even in downtown Prince George around here um, it used to be the landmarks were the large pine trees and they're they're just gone so people were uh, confused and disoriented to quite a large degree and the same happened for me too and afterwards there's just you know the trees are gone and it looks like a logging site so that's also obvious <laughs> and then we clean that up a little bit and um, what's left is a lot of pine cones and debris from logging and it, I don't know. If you walk around in the logging sites, everybody will see that. It's, it's just not everybody goes to those places.
1: Right. Well, we're going to take a, uh, a short break. And uh, when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll get a little further into this very special area that's been so lovingly portrayed.
0: It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM
1: we're back uh on uh after nine monday edition um anna rose jorgensen has been kind enough to come in from vanderhoof and join us in the studio to talk about her retrospective at the two rivers gallery um i didn't grow up in northern bc i didn't um i'm a, as a you know, permanent resident. I'm very new to this place. I certainly spend a bunch of time here doing political work in the 90s, but um, often I was uh, not getting a chance to walk through the clear cuts I was talking about or look at the Beatles that I was talking about. Um, and so... And yet, when I look at your work, it um, it speaks very strongly to me. And I, I had this... Um, I had this odd sort of thought. I thought, "Is uh, is uh, that your art is, is reminiscent of my my favorite fictional sleuth, Miss Marple?" Uh, <laughs> that right, Miss Marple, um, Agatha Christie's uh, crime-solving uh, uh, spinster, has spent her time carefully examining the village in which she lives, the small village of St Mary Mead. And because she knows that one place so precisely, Agatha Christie again and again says, because she knows the village so precisely, she knows the world. Mm -hmm. Are there, um, as you sort of drill down into this one place, um, do you feel like it's giving you these universal insights about the places that you're not?
3: I, th- I think it does, and um, I don't know what those insights would be, <laughs> but um, it it is. I mean you you, you can choose to do um, art about all kinds of things, but generally um, I, I think I've been coming closer and closer to to where I am over the time and I don't know that's I don't know why and I don't know. That's just what I'm doing.
1: So um, some people who would see you as a nature painter, and I, I know how um, people often uh, chafe at such a, at such a description. Robert Frost apparently flew into rages when people called him a nature poet. Um, some people who see you as a nature painter would have been might have been surprised to see. Uh, at the end of the hall where you were speaking, one of your larger pieces, this logging truck barreling towards them. How do you think about the place of things that humans have introduced into this environment you've been so carefully studying and documenting?
3: It, it is it is um, sort of an anomaly in the all the nature work, all those logging machines. But that's when I went to the down, down the forest roads to the bush. That's what I saw, so that's what I put in. It's, it's just there also. if I, I think if I was making art about um, the cities, I'd, I'd paint the roads and the, the cars and people walking in the city. But anyway, I'm painting the bush, so that's, I paint what I see there.
1: Yes, and the bush is inhabited, despite our best efforts to disinhabit it. Uh, So um, another observation that you made that I found really striking was that, um, and my father was a a wildlife artist in the 80s, and Mm -hmm. the first artist he started modeling his work on was Glenn Lotes, who did these, these very subject-focused pieces where literally there'd be the animal or the tree and then everything around it would fade away into nothing. And so there was a very clear sense of what the main character was in in the picture and what was not. You talked about painting the things between other things, the things that we don't think of as subjects of a painting, um, what are some of those things you found between conventional subjects that have been worth depicting?
3: Well, there's, you know, the sky and the 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 air in between stuff and the background uh, shrubbery and all the um, tangle and undergrowth. So there's a lot of stuff between stuff. There's not just the trees or the pine cones or whatever. It's everything is, it's everything is situated, um, with something around it. And that stuff is important too.
1: (laughs) And, uh, and recently, some people might think of the pine cones on the floor of the forest or the floor of a clear cut as things that are not main characters. You've gone very deeply into the detail of pine cones. Mm-hmm. It's been some of the sort of physically closest, most magnified work of yours. Um, what are you finding as you look further into the pine cone?
3: There, There's beautiful pattern and abstraction that you can find in those things too and um i don't know when i when i was making the fire paintings with all the orange and pink and um heat (laughs) then i i thought i need to go back and pick up those um some pine cones from there just to see, because they were burnt and black, and I thought, no, I need to see those black ones and then um, draw those. So that's that's what I did. Maybe it's just a, I, I don't know, as a juxtaposition to those hot fire paintings to do something uh, detailed and still pretty abstract and expressionist with the pine cones. Yeah.
1: So uh, you use the word abstract, and, of course, I, I, I live with a visual artist who also uses the word abstract in a way that mystifies me. Um, <laughs> those of us without any sort of artistic training or background don't understand how a thing that's real can also be abstract. Um, I, and I... It's not like this is the first time I've asked the question, but clearly I'm continuing to ask it. Uh, could you take a run at that, uh, at that that question?
3: Well, abstract is just sort of to, to do some art without um, connecting it to something that's real. So when you abstract from a real thing, you just make it a little bit less exactly real, less photographic, and... You're more concerned about the color or the pattern there than making a real super accurate uh, portrait of it. And abstraction from nature is sort of maybe halfway between abstraction and realism. I, that's just my, my stamp at, the, at your question.
1: Well, uh, you know, you you, uh, you have done a superb job of that. That's uh, that's actually a, a clear distillation that I can hold in my head, at least for the rest of this interview. So we're going to have a short break. And when we come back, a little bit more on um, pattern and abstraction.
0: Featuring the people who make things happen and Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Well, we're rounding out uh, the hour here on uh, After Nine. Uh, very honoured to be joined in studio by Enrose rose uh, Jorgensen, uh, Vanderhoof-based uh, painter who... Um, has uh, who has a show at the Two Rivers Gallery that I strongly urge people to check out. Really extraordinary work showing the evolution over uh, decades of an incredible artistic career. And noteworthy, I think, that Prince George is choosing to confer this honor. Often, this city struggles with um, self-esteem issues, and it's hard to authorize a local person as truly great to recognize them in that way. And uh, so something very exceptional is happening down at the gallery. But I wanted to go back to um, some of these questions around um, abstraction, seeing things like this. Uh, my dad and I uh, don't get along, and one of our last conversations was about um, his belief that he'd wasted his life thinking about pyramids. And that, that's because. In his art, he talks about how the world reveals to him that it's really made out of the Euclidean shapes, Plato's perfect solids, things like that, that the world is really made out of triangles and pyramids and spheres. Um, When you're doing this abstract work and abstracting from nature, what are the shapes that you encounter? How would you describe um, the shapes underneath the natural shapes, or the things that can be teased out of them.
3: If I, I guess I I see um, the the shapes that the natural things make. Sort of those. I don't know. They're they're not describable shapes, but sort of the shapes that I found in the languages series. They're just sort of arcs and and brush marks so they're not really shapes but i see the the world made up of those things too and then sort of connected one to another <coughs> and Back to thinking of what the world is made up of. Um, the phys- physics people tell us that the world's actually mostly made up of air, so there's not much there. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, there's less solid than we think it is.
1: Well, except for the universe, which is supposedly full of a lot of dark matter we oh, can't yes, see. Yes. Which- Not a terrible description of uh, our city here, either. (laughs) Tremendous amounts of social dark matter that is invisible except at family gatherings. Uh, So um, you have often not done this work full time. uh, That although this looks like, you know, a tremendous amount of work that would be done by a very industrious person. um, You also teach. What do you find uh, when you're dealing with college students or private pupils? What do you find are the hardest things to explain or to get them to do?
3: Um, I think it's really hard for to get people just to believe in themselves and to to keep going um, because sometimes art isn't as easy as it seems. so um, to encourage. Um, people to just keep going and believe that it'll all work out because it, it does <laughs> it does and it's yeah I've I've worked at I think not full-time but maybe about half time um, at art for a long time yeah
1: and uh, so those messages of encouragement um, they've got to be mixed in with messages of improvement. When you find people who are not self-confident in in their in their art, um, does that manifest in any particular way in how they see things or how they depict things, or uh, is that uh, unique to each uh, each person?
3: I think it's it's unique, but as as they build confidence, their art also gains in confidence. I think so. That's nice to see, um, and. I don't know. Everybody struggles with the uh, um, self-esteem and confidence. It's not. It's not just artists.
1: No, certainly not. Now you're um, you're going back to the property that's continuing to evolve. What are some of the things you're going to be looking for when uh, the snow clears uh, later this spring? Oh.
3: Well, I'll I'll keep looking at the ground. I'm I can't wait till the snow melts and I can stand with my feet right on the ground again. It feels really nice, um, and look to see what what is, you know, revealed by the melting of the snow. And at the same time, because that's not going to happen for a while, I'm working on. Um, uh, I went to the forest fire, the Shovel Lake forest fire, and took photographs and made drawings of those. So that's what I'm working on right now in my studio. Or, not right now, but <laughs> this this week.
1: <laughs> this week. So, um, uh... We've, um, so the snow clears um, and uh, you'll have your feet on the ground. Will one of those feet ever make it into uh, one of the paintings?
3: I have done that in one of the um, self portrait paintings at the very beginning of the work. I have actually done that. There's my feet and some moss. that painting got sold. So I don't know where it is now.
1: Well, that's, um, that's great. So your, your feet are at large, uh, in, uh, somewhere in North America, possibly in Europe. Uh, and, um, there, uh, uh, but, um, uh, in, when it comes to the property, do you have any intentional plans? You have all this cleared land, um, are there changes you're going to make to the space that you're depicting?
3: Um, I I don't think I'm going to make many changes. It is it's it's a um, the fields have hay on them, and we have um, a, a farmer that comes and cuts the hay and, and puts it up. And I think that'll continue. That seems like a good use of that land at the moment. Some of the places have um, grown up again into trees. Um, And the place right around my house that was clear-cut, it's growing like crazy. The trees are over my head. So that's...
1: And these are pines?
3: There's some pines, yeah. Pines and poplars are way over my head. (laughs) But the pines are... Yeah, they're growing really nicely. They must have been there before it was cut, because they wouldn't grow that fast. But still, there's... Yeah, it's a beautiful small forest
1: well and people do say that with climate change one thing that gets better is that trees do grow faster in the soil so maybe we'll get to meet some of those pines in the works to
3: come yeah it's quite likely yeah
1: all right thanks for coming on the program very much appreciated.
3: you're very welcome thanks <laughs>